like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Trust that you've enjoyed this study through Ephesians as much as I've enjoyed studying it and teaching it. First three chapters of Ephesians talk about our position in Christ. The last three talk about our practice. Chapters 1 to 3 are primarily doctrine. Chapters 4 to 6 are primarily duty. First three chapters, we're told who we are in Jesus Christ. And the last three chapters is becoming who we are in Jesus Christ. We learned all about our wealth in chapters 1 to 3. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings. God chose us. He made us holy and blameless before Him. He adopted us as sons. He gave us redemption, forgiveness, and inheritance, salvation. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. He put the very power that raised Jesus from the dead to work in our lives. And He calls us the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Great riches in the first three chapters. That's our wealth. When we come to chapters 4 to 6, He talks all about our walk. We're to walk worthy. We're to walk different from the world. We're to walk in love. We're to walk as children of light. We're to walk in wisdom. And we're to walk, chapter 5, verse 18, by being filled with the Spirit of God. So that we are singing and giving thanks to the Lord and being submissive to one another. And then last week we began to look at how Paul ends this great book in chapter 6 and verse 10. Where he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Paul says, even though you've got all the resources and all the power and all the principles, and even though you've got the Holy Spirit, I want to remind you that you also have something else, and that is an enemy. And so Paul reminds us at the close of the book of Ephesians that we are in a battle. And probably the best term to define the Christian life is warfare. When I was a kid, we used to sing the song, I'm going to a mansion on the Happy Day Express. The letters on the engine are J-E-S-U-S. The guard calls all for heaven. We gladly answer yes. We're going to a mansion on the Happy Day Express. That's a wonderful song. But the Christian life is not described as a train ride in Scripture. It is defined as a battle. At the end of Paul's life, he said, I have fought the good fight. In his ministry, he said, I fight not as one who beats the air. He writes to Timothy and he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And repeatedly, the Christian life in Scripture is depicted as a warfare. You know, I've had people tell me that the Christian life gets easier as you go along. But I haven't found that to be so. I figured by now I'd be cruising. I'm convinced that if things are getting easier, you're probably going the wrong way. Because if you become effective for God, you will get more attention from the enemy and his attacks will become more intense. Many times Christians begin a ministry and then they slack off or they drop out and when you ask them why, they say, well, it just became inconvenient. It it just became difficult. And the answer I want to give is, What did you expect? Because it's warfare. 
And it's going to be tough. And it's going to be difficult. When I was in Bible college, several of us got the idea and the conviction that we wanted to go out and start a church. So we were in Chicago and we went out to Joliet, a city nearby, on Sunday afternoons and we began knocking on people's doors. We didn't even have a plan. We just knocked on their door and started telling them about Jesus. Well, we started out with 12 of us going out on Sunday afternoons and after a few weeks, there were three of us. Which is pretty typical of ministry because the enemy is going to put obstacles in the way. He's going to make it difficult to accomplish the task. I love the attitude of the Apostle Paul in the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. And if you've never marked these verses, you need to. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 8. Paul says, But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, I'd like to come and visit you, But I'm going to stay here. Why? Because there's lots of enemies. Now, most of the time when we see lots of enemies, we say, it's time for a vacation. Paul sees lots of enemies and he says, I must be in the hottest part of the battle, so I'm not going anywhere else. Because I'm on the front lines. There's enemies all around me. I'm right where I need to be, and so I can't go. I'm staying here. Oftentimes, when things go wrong in our life, we ask the question, what am I doing wrong? Let me suggest to you that sometimes when things go wrong, it's because you're doing what's right. When you start to serve God, the adversaries will increase. And what you need to do in that situation is say with Paul, I must be on the front lines. So I'm staying right here and entertaining the battle. I played a lot of sports growing up, and one of the things that I never liked to do was sit on the bench, although sometimes the coaches had different ideas. remember one time in high school, I was playing Connie Mack baseball, and I was playing center field, and I dropped two fly balls in one inning, and I sat on the bench for a while. But I never liked to do that because I liked to be out where the action was. But you know, I have to admit that sometimes in the spiritual warfare, I find myself satisfied to sit on the sidelines and watch. I find myself satisfied to be a reserve. We need the attitude of Paul. We need to say, I want to be where the action is. I want to be where the enemies are. I want to be on the front lines. Do you feel that way? There's no reason not to. Because Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 6, we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Verse 11, we are to put on the full armor of God. We're to realize that our strength is in the Lord and we are to put His armor on and we are to stand. And that's our strategy because as he says in verse 12, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. You see, your real problem is not what you see. Your real problem is what you don't see. A lot of people come to me and say, my problem is my wife, or my problem is my husband. What you need to realize is that your problem is the enemy, and you need to join hands and begin to fight against him because he is trying to destroy your marriage. See, if you 
think you're fighting people, then Satan's got you right where he wants you. Because if that's the case, you will never confront the real enemy and you will never get the armor of God on. And Satan knows if he can keep the armor of God off of you, then you're beat. Because no one, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has ever taken Satan on one-on-one and one. So after telling us we need to get the armor on, Paul lists the pieces of armor in verses 14 to 17. And we're going to begin to look at those this morning. And what I want you to do is look at each piece carefully because he tells us that we are to put on the full armor of God. And as we look at these pieces, you may find some pieces you've got on and some pieces you don't have on. And so our challenge is to get the whole armor of God on as we go through. First piece of armor is the belt of truth, verse 14. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, the soldier in that day wore a tunic. It had a hole for the head opening and two holes for the arms. When he went to war, he put his belt on that went around his waist and up over his shoulder, and he would tuck that tunic into the belt and make kind of a mini tunic out of it. Because the last thing he wanted in battle was to have pieces of his tunic flopping around so that somebody could grab a hold of him. Kind of the same principle as football. In football, they wear skin-tight clothes. You never hear a football player coming to his coach and saying, you know, I'd like to get some pleated pants. I'd like to get some bell-bottoms. I like that baggy look, you know, where the pants are about to fall off. No, they want it all tight. And, and that's the way it was with the soldier. When he went to war, he tucked everything tightly into his belt so that nothing was sticking out. And so this phrase, to gird up your loins, means to be ready, to be prepared. In Exodus chapter 12, God spoke through Moses to the children of Israel at the first Passover meal, and he said, you're to eat it with your loins girded, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you're to eat it in a hurry. Why? Because they had to be ready to go. And so this idea of girding up your loins means that you're ready, you're prepared, you're serious. And this is the first piece of armor. He says, I want you to be ready for the battle. I want you to have a heart for the battle. I want you to be committed. A lot of Christians never get their belt on. They never get serious about the battle that they're in, and so they just have their tunic flopping around in the breeze. Paul says, the first piece of armor I want you to get on is the belt of truth. And I want you to tuck that tunic in so that you're serious and you're ready for the battle that you're in. Now, he says here that the belt is the belt of truth, which tells us that the way we get serious about the battle is to get into the Word of God. Now, I think the emphasis here, here is not so much on the Word of God because later he's going to talk about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But I think here he's telling us that we use the Word of God, the truth of God, in order to prepare ourselves, in order to tuck in everything that's loose and get serious about the battle. Have you got the first piece of armor on? Do you have a heart for battle? I used to be a... St. Louis football cardinal fan and uh, years ago they drafted a fellow by the name of George Franklin out of somewhere in Texas and they drafted him in the second round and during the preseason they were bragging about this guy all the time. They said, you know, he was the fastest guy on the team and, and he, he played fullback but he had the moves of a halfback he had the hands of a wide receiver and they just gave accolade after accolade about this fellow and I just couldn't wait till the season got here to see this guy was going to turn the team around well, they got to the last preseason game and they cut him. 
I thought, well, what's the deal here? So I looked in the paper and had a quote from the coach, and he said, he had all the talent in the world, but he lacked commitment. Let me suggest to you that Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 tell me that you've got all the resources, all the riches, all the power. The question is, do you have the commitment? And that's the first piece of armor, that we would tuck that tunic into the belt and get serious about the battle that we're in. Second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness at the end of verse 14. No soldier would go into battle without his breastplate. It covered the whole front part of his body. And it protected the heart area and the bowel area, which contains the vital organs. Now, in Scripture, the heart speaks to us of the mind. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the Bible says, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts. So the heart is the place where we think. The bowel area or the stomach area speaks of emotion. The Bible talks about the bowels of compassion, of shutting up the bowels of love. And so the stomach area, the bowel area speaks about our emotions probably because we tend to feel emotions there. Now we tend to confuse those two because today we tend to associate emotions with the heart. See, it would be more accurate scripturally to say to a girl, I love you with all my bowels. Or she broke my bowels. <laughs> or uh, on Valentine's Day, you could pass out little candy stomachs. Because <laughs> in Scripture, the heart is the place where I think. The stomach or the bowels is where my emotions are centered. And those are the two places that Satan wants to get us. He wants to attack us through our thoughts. And he wants to catch us up in our emotions and carry us away. And so Paul says, we need the breastplate of righteousness. Now in Scripture, there are three kinds of righteousness. There's self-righteousness, which is what I do. There is imputed righteousness, that is the righteousness of God put to my account. And then there is practical righteousness, which comes after imputed righteousness, and and which is the practical application of that into my life. And we see those three kinds of righteousness clearly in Scripture. One place is Luke chapter 18 where the two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax gatherer. The Pharisee said, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers. Uh, In fact, I thank you that I'm not like that tax gatherer over there. I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. What is that? That's self-righteousness. God, I thank you that I am so wonderful. That's what he's saying. Meanwhile, the tax gatherer is standing over there, and Jesus said he was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he kept beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't have any righteousness. I'm a sinner. And then we get Jesus' commentary on that, and it's rather surprising. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the word justified means declared righteous. The man who came to God and said, my, how wonderful I am, went away as a sinner. And the man who said, I'm a sinner, I don't have any righteousness, got the righteousness of God imputed to his life, and Jesus said he went away righteous. Paul points out that same idea when we come over to the next book, which is Philippians, into chapter 3. He lists his credentials in the flesh. 
beginning in verse 5. And he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul says, here's my credentials in the flesh. If people got to heaven by keeping the law, I'd be there. But then notice what he says next. In verse 7, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, I listed all those things so that I could tear them up and throw them away because they're loss. In fact, he says in verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish means horse manure. He says, I've got all these positive credentials in the flesh, but I consider them horse manure in view of knowing Jesus Christ. Why can he say that? Well, he gives us the commentary in verse 9. And may be found in him... Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's self-righteousness. Paul says, I don't want that. It's not acceptable with God. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I don't want self-righteousness. That doesn't get anywhere with God. I want the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. That's imputed righteousness. But I want you to notice something in this passage. If you slide down to verse 12, he continues on. And he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Verse 14, I press on. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I've got imputed righteousness. That came by faith in Christ, but I'm not satisfied there. I press on in order to make that positional righteousness practical in my life. I want practical righteousness. And that is what the breastplate is. It's taking my positional righteousness and making it practical in my life. Christians are usually big on imputed righteousness. We need to be big on practical righteousness. It's like the bumper sticker, Christians are not perfect, just forgive it. That's true. Do you know where the believers were first called Christians? The Bible tells us it was in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, which indicates that they didn't come up with that name and say, my, Christians would be a neat name, let's take that. The people around them called them Christians. Because they saw the difference in their life and they say, Christ is gone, but these guys are just like him. They're Christ ones. And they pointed at them. Yes, we have to have imputed righteousness. It comes by faith, the righteousness of Christ. But beyond that, we need to make that positional righteousness practical in, in our lives. That's our breastplate. We're in a warfare. Some of us got those little bibs you get at McDonald's. You know, the little plastic ones on. And we're getting beat. Because we need the breastplate of righteousness. I experience that in my life. When I, when I fail in an area in my life, I find that Satan comes after me in that area. I mean, he, he just keeps nailing me there, and the temptation seems to be great until I finally deal with that issue, and it's like I, the breastplate is in place, and then, then he's not hitting me in that spot anymore. And then he tries a different scheme, and that is to make me proud about the fact that I'm doing so well in that area, and then I fall again. Uh, but you see, that breastplate is what protects that area. And Paul says we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Third piece of armor is the shoes, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Footwear was important to the soldier. We 
don't really understand that so well today because most of our footwear is for fashion. Uh, we probably understand it better if we look at the athlete today because there are a variety of kinds of shoes for different sports. There's running shoes and baseball shoes and golf shoes and soccer shoes and football shoes and basketball shoes. In fact, we have shoe, uh, stores devoted to just athletic shoes today. The soldier in that day wore sort of a half boot, half sandal, and it had a studded sole on it so that he could climb through all kinds of terrain and so that in the midst of the battle, his feet didn't slip. Worst thing that could happen to a soldier would be have his feet slip out from under him. And so Paul says you need to have the shoes on. Now what are my shoes as a Christian? Well, he says it's a readiness to share the gospel of peace. Let me just share with you four steps for getting your shoes on. Number one, appreciate what you have. He says it's the gospel of peace. Now, the Bible talks about peace in two ways. One way is objective. It says we have peace with God. The other way is subjective. The Bible says we have the peace of God. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ... At that point in time, you are no longer the enemy of God. You, at that point, have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's objective. But beyond that, when you begin to live in Christ and to live out peace with God, you experience the peace of God. And that's subjective. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says that the peace of God passes all understanding. You can't even define it, but you can experience it. So if you're in turmoil here this morning, if your heart is full of turmoil, it's because of one of two reasons. One may be that you're not a Christian yet, and so you don't have peace with God. The other is that you may be a Christian, but you're not applying this truth to your life. You're not appreciating the peace you have with God. See, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives peace. See, the peace of the world is different. What's the peace of the world like? It's circumstantial. If I can get a million dollars, I got peace. If my house burns down, I don't have peace. The peace of the world is circumstantial. The peace of God is based on my relationship with Him, and that never changes. And my relationship with Him is based on the cross. If you go back in Ephesians to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15, it says that at the cross, Jesus established peace. And that's why He says here, it's the gospel of peace because he associates our peace with the gospel, because that's how we came into this peace, and that's the peace we have to share with others. See, Satan can knock over your health. He can knock over your wealth. He can knock over your circumstances, but he can't knock over the cross. And he says it is the gospel of peace. I came into that peace through the gospel and I have that gospel of peace to share with others. And the first thing we need to do is appreciate what we have. I heard an interview years ago with Muhammad Ali and they 
they said to him, you know, you're known all over the world. In fact, you're probably the best known person on the face of the earth. You've got great wealth, fame, everything a person could want. Is there anything in life that you don't have that you would like? And without hesitation, Muhammad Ali said, I would like peace with God. See, I have it. You have it in the gospel. And we have it to share. And we need to appreciate what we have. Paul appreciated what he had, and that motivated him to share the gospel. See, he said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. When I know what I've got, then I want to share it. Earlier in Ephesians 3.8, he said, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul says, I am the very least, but God has given me the privilege to share the unfathomable riches of Christ with people. See, when we understand that's what the gospel is, then nobody's going to keep us from sharing it. That word unfathomable is interesting. If you go to the various commentaries and the various translations, they come up with all kinds of words to try to describe it, like unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite. Those are the riches of Christ, and that's what we have in Him. And we need to appreciate that so that we'll want to share it. So the first step is to appreciate what you have. It's the gospel of peace. Second thing is to realize your responsibility. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 15, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. See, Jesus gave us a commandment that we are to share the gospel with others. You have friends at school, you have friends at work, you have friends in your neighborhood that may not know another Christian. You may be the only light that they have. And God has given you the responsibility to share the gospel with those people. I'm always amazed by the statement that Paul made in Acts 20, 26. He said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why could he say that? Because every time he had the opportunity to share Christ with someone else, he did it. And he could say, I'm innocent of the blood of other men because I have taken those opportunities and I have taken that responsibility seriously and I have shared the gospel. We need to appreciate what we have. We need to realize that it's our responsibility. And then the third step is we need to pray for people. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. So when we go out to share the gospel, the first thing we need to be doing is praying about those individuals we're going to share with. That's interesting when you pray for somebody's salvation, what happens. Because if you pray for somebody's salvation on a regular basis, the next time you see that person, you know what you're going to be thinking about? Their salvation. And God very well may use you to be the answer to your prayers. And beyond that, when you pray for somebody, it develops a deep concern and love for that person, and that needs to be the foundation of our sharing the gospel anyway. I committed my life to the Lord when I was 20, and I was living out in Denver, Colorado, uh, trying to be a hippie. And... uh, I was out there with three other fellows. One of them was Bill Cobb. And at that time, Bill, Bill had hair that went almost all the way down his back. 
uh, and uh, we, w- we were planning on getting a van at the end of that summer and just driving around the country, but those plans were changed when the Lord got a hold of me. And so I ended up hitchhiking back to Nashville and by some interesting circumstances ended up in Bible College in Chicago. Bill ended up in Washington, D.C. Most of my friends sort of figured I had OD'd on drugs or something and left me alone, but Bill and I continued to correspond with each other. And I made a commitment to pray for him at the beginning of that year, and I prayed for him almost every day for his salvation. He wrote me about the middle of the year and said uh, he was coming back to Cape Girardeau to party with our friends and wondered if he could stop in Chicago and spend the night on the way. And I said that would be great. So I remember he showed up on a Friday night and, and I just got in from a basketball game. We played Moody in basketball and I came in and, and uh, they told me Bill was there and I came in and there he was in the lobby. Nobody else was in the lobby. I think they were afraid of him. He was sitting in there. And uh, so we went out for pizza that night and then the next morning we had breakfast and we came over to the school and we went in that same lobby and sat on the couch and I said to Bill, I said, you know, I'd like to share with you what I've been learning at Bible college. And I remember I started in Genesis. I started explaining everything I could think of to him and uh, just laying it out and laying it out. And I don't know how long I talked to him, but... Uh, and you have to understand that Bill was uh, president of the archaeology club and a devoted evolutionist. And, and uh, he's sitting there just quietly listening to me as I go through this whole thing and share it with him. We got to the... Or I got to the end and I said would you like to pray right now and accept Jesus Christ? And Bill said, yes, I would. Well, it was a Saturday in the school and there were people everywhere and so it's kind of noisy in there. So I said, well, why don't we find a quieter place? So we got up and we went through the school trying to find somewhere where nobody was. And the only place we could find was downstairs. It was the women's locker room. So we went in the women's locker room and we ended up on the shower floor of the women's locker room on our knees, with tears running down our face, and he invited Jesus Christ into his life. And I remember thinking after that, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I've got the gift of evangelism. (laughs) Because, I mean, you know, I I laid it out for him, and, you know. And what was interesting was, I, it wasn't long after that Bill made this statement to me. He said, you know, when you were talking to me, he said, I had all kinds of questions that I wanted to ask, but I couldn't think of any of them. And he said, the only thing I sensed there, he said, in fact, I don't remember really ever hearing a word you said. <laughs> he said, what I did sense was the presence of God there telling me that I needed to accept Christ. And when I look back on that, I realized that it wasn't my clever words. It was the fact that I prayed for him day after day after day. And God prepared his heart for that moment. We need to appreciate what we've got. We need to realize we've got a responsibility. And then we need to pray for people. And then fourth step, we need to speak. I've had Christians tell me that if you just live the Christian life, people will walk up to you and say, Ooh, what's different about you? I've never had anybody say that to me. Uh, Maybe you can say that's because my life isn't shining bright enough, but I am convinced that we have to speak. And Scripture lays it out that way. I find Christians who can talk about all kinds of subjects. The weather, the economy, sports, politics, 
But when it comes to the very most important subject in our lives, Jesus Christ, we remain quiet. Why is that? And I'm sure we have all kinds of excuses. I've heard a lot of them. People say, well, I don't know enough to share the gospel. Well, that's a pretty weak excuse. Because if you're saved, you know enough to share the gospel. In fact, an interesting book for you to read would be 1 Thessalonians. There, Paul is writing to a church. The oldest Christian there has only been a Christian for a few months. And Paul says about them that the Word of God is spreading everywhere from that church. Now, they weren't sharing big, heavy doctrine. They were sharing their testimony of what Jesus had done in their lives. And if you look at the example of the Apostle Paul, whenever he got an opportunity to share the gospel, what did he do? He shared his testimony. He just said, I was on the road to Damascus one day, and you're not going to believe what happened to me. If you're a Christian, you've got a testimony. And so you can speak. You say, well, what if somebody asks me a question I can't answer? Well, the reason you ask that question, pardon me, but the reason you ask that question is because of pride. We're afraid we might look bad not having an answer. You stick around me long enough, you'll find that my favorite answer is, I don't know. I say that all the time. People ask me questions, I say, I don't know. When I was in Bible college, I went down to Cook County Jail and we had Bible studies there, uh, which is rather intimidating, actually. I, I, I'd been in Bible school about three weeks and I found myself down at Cook County Jail leading a Bible study. About 15 guys sitting around in a circle and, and the Bible study really, because I didn't know anything to teach, really amounted to them asking me questions. So they'd ask me a question, I'd say, I don't know but I'll try to find out this week. So I'd go back to Bible school and I'd come back and say, here's your answer. And then they'd say, well, what about this? I'd say, I don't know. Well, I'll go back and try to find out. I think that's what motivated me to learn while I was there because I knew I had to face these guys every Monday night. <laughs> but see, probably nine out of ten people that I talk to have never had the simple gospel explained to them. And people have said to me, I've never heard that before. There's so many people out there and they've never had the simple gospel just explained in simple terms to them. In fact, I've had people say to me, I've been waiting to accept Christ and nobody's ever asked me. We need to speak. You see, we ought to be sharing the Lord Jesus with people, not just because he commanded us and not just because we have a burden for other people, but because it's part of our armor. You see, we are strengthened. It's part of our defense to actually be sharing the gospel because sharing the gospel not only has an effect on others, it has an effect on me. And personally, I can tell when I'm actively witnessing and when I'm not. Bible studies are fine. Christian fellowship is fine. Christian camps are fine. But that's not enough. We need to be taking the gospel of Christ and sharing it with other people. Bill got saved on a Saturday. I took him down to Cook County Jail Monday night. And he shared his testimony with the other inmates. And I remember we came out of that room into another room after the Bible study and the inmates were being taken by by the guards and I happened to look over at Bill and he just kind of had this glow all over him. Uh, he, he looked like, I guess, Stephen looked in Acts chapter 7, like the face of an angel. And I just looked over at him and Bill looked at me and he said, he said, it's amazing. I can actually offer to people eternal life. Now, Bill grew faster than probably anybody I've ever seen in his Christian life. He passed me by in a big hurry. 
I think one of the reasons was because early on in his Christian experience, he learned to get his shoes on. He learned to be ready to share the gospel of peace. How about you? We're going to stop there this morning. But I want you to consider those three pieces of armor throughout this day and throughout this week and do a little evaluation and see if you have them securely fixed in your life.